when I uh, selected these uh, scripture passages, I was trying to be a dutiful Methodist, and I list all the lectionary texts for the first Sunday in Lent. And then I first met Dr. Biggs last night, and he told me he just did one lesson. And since that's really what I intended to do anyway, I'm going to read one lesson. This is from Genesis 9. This is uh, the end of the flood narrative, beginning at verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, As for me, I am establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the domestic animals, and every animal of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, This is a sign of the covenant that I make between me and you, and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I will set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it is a terrific thing for me to get to be in this great church and uh, to be included in this uh, distinguished roster of uh, people who have dropped by. And I have uh, thus far already appreciated the hospitality of your pastors and uh, of many of you, and I look forward to these uh, days with you. So the question with which I begin is, what would you do if you were God? What would you do if you were God and you noticed that the world you had made had gone crazy? You could see how the rich were devouring the poor and reducing more and more people to poverty. You could observe how the great nations, including our own, use up their resources with war efforts and calling it patriotism. You could watch while the lead creatures, man and woman, defile and pollute the earth and make it unlivable. Well, if you were the god of the philosophers, if you were omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent and I don't know what all, you probably wouldn't notice. You'd just treat it as a little blip and go on. But if you are the God of the gospel who loves the world, what you would do is engage the world that has gone crazy. You would engage the world at some deep emotional level that matched your love for the world and your concern that it's become a self-destructive operation. 
And so the Bible imagines God back in the book of Genesis that God is deeply upset that the world has gone crazy. And God is sorry that the project of creation ever got started in the first place. He said, I wish I hadn't done it. And in an emotional frenzy over betrayed love, God decides to drown his sorrows. So he opens all the spigots of heaven and earth full blast. And in order to trace the emotional extremity of God, the story traces the raging flood waters. Forty days and forty nights, the waters swelled and increased greatly. The waters swelled so mightily that the great mountains were covered. The mountains were, the waters was 15 cubits deep. Now, we don't know what a cubit is, but it's deep. (laughs) Everything died. Everything was blotted out. Human beings, animals, creeping things, birds, 150 days of it. This is not about water. It's about God's emotional attachment to the earth. It's about God the way it's about a parent of a teenager who goes into a frenzy over a teenager's stupidity and insanity and recalcitrance. You know about that. The waters match the rising affront that God felt in a failed earth. The same failed earth that we observe as the rich eat the poor as the war use up our resources, as we lethally violate the environment, and more and more people are dying of cancer. This is a God who cares in frenzied ways about the earth. And then, in a jarring moment of recognition, we are told God remembers God remembered that there were faithful who had not joined the insanity. And God stopped short in a frenzy of emotion the way a parent of a teenager is stopped when you remember in your rage that this is my well-beloved daughter or son. God comes to God's sense after almost having lost God's way. And because God remembered, we are told, the waters subsided, the waters receded, the waters abated, the waters continued to abate, and dry land appeared, all because God had remembered. The story is not about water. It's about God and about God's deep way with the earth and about God's raging anger at betrayal and about God's abrupt about face. When God remembers what God had forgotten, had forgotten about loving the earth and the creatures in it. So what would you do if you were God? when you noticed that your creation had gone crazy, when you saw the rich eating the poor into more poverty, when you saw the killing wars in the name of patriotism, when you watched while the earth was being abused to death. 
Well, what this God did was a big second effort. When I was in college, I learned the phrase second effort from Bud Wilkinson. I thought I'd say that. You know, he used to talk about when you get knocked down, get up and go. The first effort was emotive punishment that was to drown God's sorrow as the earth was drowned. But the second effort is God's new resolve when God remembered. And we are told that God did four new things. The first thing is that God came to a new realism about the earth and its creatures, and God lowered God's expectations. That's what my therapist told me to do about my children. Lower your expectations. They get so low that you're never disappointed again. God came to see that human persons are bent on evil destruction. He says, they just got evil imagination, and they're always going to have evil imagination. It won't change, in spite of Wesleyan hopes for us to get better. So God decided to rise above the self-destruction and never again to act in uncontrolled rage. So the psalmist can say about God's awareness, He knows how we are made. He remembers our frame. He knows that we are dust. God does not expect more of us than we can deliver. The second thing is that God issues an amazing decree God says, as long as the earth remains seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night will not cease. It's reliable. It's reliable even while it's all being abused. This is a decree that only a competent creator can issue. It is a divine guarantee that the world will work in all of its agricultural seasons, in all of its reliable rhythms. God promises and guarantees a production of food that the earth will be sustained, that creation will be fruitful and blessed with generosity that will not be interrupted even by our craziness. Third, God assured that all human life will be honored and protected and says, you shall not kill another human being because the life is in the blood. Imagine that, the lives of the poor, the lives of criminals, the lives of Muslims, the lives of old people, the lives of babies, the lives of all the vulnerable people who are not worth much. God prohibits the kind of violence that we take as normal 
So these three acts constitute God's generous second effort. A realism about human capacity, a guarantee for a food-bearing creation and protection of all human life. The world is under new governance. This is the same new governance that Jesus came to enact when he said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And because the rule of God has begun, we can stop and we must stop the craziness. We must stop the rich eating the poor with our economic arrangements. We must stop war in the name of patriotism with our lust for power. We must stop the deathliness of the environment with our hope for more consumer goods. And we can stop because it does not fit the new governance. And then we come to God's fourth big response in God's second effort, which is the text we read in Genesis 9. The whole of verses 9 to 17 that I read to you is one long speech by God because God has so much to say. I talked to my wife last night, and she's the reader in our church this morning. She's reading Genesis 9. She says, it's so repetitious. I said, every word is important. I said, it's a formal oath of loyalty on God's part. So it's legal language. You know how lawyers are. Lawyers want to get every word in the right place and say it three times. That's what God does. It's a divine declaration of God's readiness to relate to the world differently. It is a promise on God's part to be faithfully the creator God who upholds the world and gives it life. And we notice when you look at these verses that there is no command on God's part. There's no condition given to humanity. It's just a resolve that God will uphold the world and keep it safe and make it function for life. The term used for all of this in Genesis 9 is covenant. It's a, it's a word about binding mutual loyalty. Maybe the word is taken from Mount Sinai with God's covenant with Israel. It's an anticipation of the church's holy communion in which we drink the cup of the new covenant. Except this covenant that God makes is not with Israel at Sinai and it's not with the church at holy communion. It is a covenant, says the text, with you and all your children and grandchildren, and with every living creature, with the birds, with the domestic animals, and every animal on the earth with you. Imagine that. Imagine that God has sworn fidelity to every creature, that God has a covenant with every finch and every blue jay. My mother always saw those darn blue jays. Every buzzard that God has sworn fidelity to every animal, every squirrel, every hippo, every cricket, that God has sworn fidelity 
to every person, every Christian, every Muslim, every Jew, every Hindu, every disabled person, every street person, every white male, every gay person, every, all, each. It takes your breath away. It's a huge second effort. God promises that God will never again go into a raging flood. Indeed, now, the only flood that will happen is that we will be flooded with God's fidelity. So I want you during Lent to go home and think about God's second effort. Because I don't know anybody that doesn't need God's second effort in their life. God has now come to a good bit of self-awareness. And now God can remember back a couple chapters when in God's deep regret, God became emotively destructive. And God figures now in chapter 9, well, you know, if I forgot back then, I might forget now. I might fall back into emotional craziness. And so God provides a way that God will remember the oath. God ties a finger, a string around God's finger so that God does not... No, that's not what God does. God puts a bow in the sky, an archer's bow in the sky. And every time God sees it, oh, oh yes, I made a promise. So I talked to my wife last night. She said, It's so strange that God would put a weapon in the sky. I said, it's a rainbow. She said, oh. She said, that's good. Because if I remember a rainbow, I won't be tempted to say bow when I'll say bow. She said, do you think our pastor will let me put rainbow? I said, no, you better not do that. So strewn across the sky is a reminder to God that God so loved the world. God remembers God's resolve about us. God remembers to lower expectations. God remembers the guarantee of a reliable creation. God remembers the covenant to keep the world working in rhythm. God remembers to protect every animal and creature and plant. God remembers twice, once with Noah to stop the waters and now to sustain creation. This covenant is God's commitment to the world, the kind a parent makes to a teenager not to go off in a wild binge of anger. It's not about water, so we ought not to use our money trying to recover the ark, for God's sake. It's about God who emotes in anger and who circles back in a second effort. It's about God, and if it's about God, it's about us. And if it's about us, it's about you. And it's about me. It's about the world being flooded with fidelity that is God's antidote to all of the craziness.
It's a witness to God's second effort that we have come to know in Jesus of Nazareth. It's an invitation for us to maintain our sanity in an insane world. So think about this. We are flooded with gifts of neighborliness, and now the economy in which the rich devour the poor is inappropriate. We are flooded with peaceable possibility, and now our old lusts for war are out of sync with the purposes of God. We are flooded with fruitfulness, and now our technological destruction of the world is passé. So God doesn't command anything here, but God makes our present craziness inappropriate and out of sync and passé. The rainbow is aimed at God, but it wouldn't hurt if we noticed as a reminder of fidelity. So we are left dazzled by this God who has made a new resolve about creation. We are left aware so that we can notice the reliability of creation that is a gift that keeps on giving. We are left grateful about a God who gives and gives and gives. So imagine what a day it was when they stepped off the ark into God's guaranteed creation where no one needed to be anxious anymore. And now the work is toward a new life that matches God's promises. It is our proper work. God remembers, and we are not going to forget. Amen.